Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. On today's episode of The Forest Garden, we'll be interviewing Tessa Peters, Director of Crop Stewardship at the Land Institute. Some of you listeners may have heard of Kernza, the perennial grain or kernel harvested from intermediate wheatgrass a grain that has the potential to revolutionize modern agriculture. Today, we'll take a deep dive into Kernza and learn about some of the other perennialization projects taking place at the Land Institute. Stick with us. Tessa Peters, thank you so much for being with us today. Why don't we start off with who you are and what brought you to the Land Institute? And also, we should probably explain to folks what the Land Institute is, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. So my name is Tessa Peters. I am the Director of Crop Stewardship at the Land Institute. The Land Institute is a nonprofit research organization that is focused on developing perennial grain crops and perennial grain cropping systems. We're really focused on perennials because of their benefits to soil health and limiting erosion and carbon sequestration and all kinds of benefits of perennials. But we're we're focused on grains because grains make up something like 70% of the calories that humans ingest. So that's that's why we're really focused on grains. And a perennial is just a plant that you don't have to plant year after year. It grows it, you plant it one year and it will come back the following year and the following year. So our goal is to develop grain crops that unlike wheat and oats and barley and corn and soy, all of the grain crops that we're, we're used to hearing about, the crops that we work on do not need to be planted year after year. So it reduces the amount of tillage that needs to be, be used to plant these crops and it, and it increases you know, habitat for ground nesting birds and insects and all kinds of things like that. Gotcha. And and the importance there is, you know, tillage increases climate emissions for like the long-term goal, correct? Yeah. Tillage is also something that releases a lot of the carbon that, that would otherwise be stored in the soil. So our goal with perennials is to get that carbon back into the soil and keep it there um, longer term. So perennials tend to have really large and long root structures. And when they have those kind of root structures, you know, even if you were to till after, you know, to rotate out of a perennial, a lot of that root structure is going to be below the, the level of tillage. And so you actually will still retain some of that, that carbon sequestration that happened. So what exactly is the Crop Stewardship Program at the Land Institute? Yeah, so the Crop Stewardship Program at the Land Institute is whenever the crops are kind of ready to leave the research station. So we have crop, we have plant breeders who are developing these crops, and then we have people who are working on the on growing them in diverse mixtures, and we have people who are working on, you know, protecting them from diseases and pests. And when those plants get ready to leave the research station. That's kind of where my work begins and where my team and I work on developing supply chains, um, ensuring that these are safe as food crops, and then moving them into the marketplace and working with market partners. So we do all of those kinds of things, as well as working on kind of the policy sphere and making sure that there are systems in place for, you know, accurately doc- documenting these crops through USDA programs and things like that. 
Gotcha. And when you were talking about the uh, the root structure, I mean, I've seen photos of uh, like specifically Kernza um, intermediate wheatgrass that has like 10 foot deep root system, you know, just like absolutely absurd compared to annual counterparts. Could we just take a second to talk about some of the benefits of the soil depth of the root systems? Yeah, the 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 root structures you know, Kernza has a really impressive root structure and so do some of the other crops that we work with, but it is really important that, you know, we're, we're seeing like, yeah, 10 to 15 feet, depending on the soil type. So certainly those, those roots are extending pretty deep into the soil profile, which allows, you know, an increased aeration deeper into the soil profile. It also increases, you know, maybe the levels at which you're seeing soil fungus and or fungi and soil bacteria in the soil profile. So we, we're hoping to see some of the, that kind of results from these additions of perennials into these systems. Because of these long root structures, Kearns is also able to access water deeper in the soil profile. So we're also hopeful that Kearns can be a really important crop in terms of being more drought resilient in the long term. For folks who have never heard of it, could we do a brief history of what, of well, first, I guess, what Kernza is and sort of a history of the research related to it? Yeah, sure. So Kernza is the trade name, the trademark name under which the grain or seed of intermediate wheatgrass is sold. So intermediate wheatgrass is a cool season forage grass that's been, that originates in Central Asia. I think most of the accessions that are in the U.S. came out of Turkey. It has been used in the U.S. for more than 100 years as a forage grass, so primarily for folks who have cattle, and they've been grazing their cattle on this grass. When we, you know, at the Land Institute became interested in perennial grain crops, we were crossing intermediate wheatgrass with, with annual wheat, and we still are doing this, to try and keep everything that we like about the perennial intermediate wheatgrass and everything we like about the annual. So we want really big seeds and all of those things along with this, this amazing root structure. But the lead breeder, Lee DeHaan, as he was making some of those crosses, sort of thought, you know, actually that intermediate wheatgrass in and of itself has potential to be its own crop separate from just being a kind of donor of perenniality to annual wheat. And so he started a breeding program specifically for intermediate wheatgrass and has been working on breeding intermediate wheatgrass by making selections for larger seed size and reduced shattering. So shattering is when the, the seed matures and it falls from the plant. So we, if we want to be able to harvest that seed, we, we need to reduce the plant's ability to lose that seed easily. So he's been working on that for about 20 to 25 years and has made some really good gains. And so in about 2016, the first production plantings of this crop were, were put in the ground and we started to, to have the first product, which was a beer that Patagonia Provisions released in 2016. I know I saw that and I'm so I, I'm so grumpy I didn't get to try it. It's like the long root ale. <laughs> it's such a cool name for a, for a beer for, for those of us who drink beer. So Kernza research only started like 20 years ago. 
which in the grand scheme of things, I mean, like, you know, annual wheat and different grain crops have been cultivated for millennia, if not, you know, have been cultivated for at least 10,000 years. What are some of the hurdles that Kernza has had to go through in terms of getting it in the past 20 years, this sort of like rapid development to get it to be as performing as its annual counterparts? Yeah, I think that I think that the number one is just seed size. So the seed of Kernza is is still about a third the size of wheat. Um, we've made really good gains and we're seeing those that the seed size is increasing with each cycle of selection each year that we make those selections. But that's that's the big thing. And then, you know, there are other ways to increase yield. So do you have small seeds, but more of them? That's something that we've also looked at. The main thing is just increasing the seed size so that we have higher yields and are able to to get the grain to market at a price that's that's affordable for consumers. So that's the really big challenge that wheat's ancestors have also had to had to be selected for increased seed size. And you know, after the 1960s or you know after the Green Revolution, that was sort of when we really saw big gains in wheat yields. And so we're we're also interested in getting gains in Kernza yield, but not necessarily having to rely so heavily on inputs to be like chemical inputs to be the reason that we get those yields. So we're really at this time really focused on the plant breeding and getting the yields increased. But yeah, shattering is another one. The other thing is that, you know, as we make selections for yield, we really are are wanting to to see what those effects then do to the below ground root structure and things like that. So we're really curious about whether those selections will change Kernza's root structure, because of course we don't want large changes in terms of that root structure. Could we take a moment to talk about the processing? So like, you know, a grower grows out Kernza in their wheat, in, in what could have been an annual wheat field. You know, I imagine they have some sort of machinery come through and then what happens next? So generally folks are harvesting with the combine, you know, whether that they're, they're straight cutting it or whether they're like swathing it and then picking it up. And then they send it, the next step is to send it to a processing facility where it can be cleaned. And for many uses, then it has to be de-hulled. So it, it is in the hole the same as like, you know, oats or some of the, some barleys and some other ancient grains. The holes are generally not a problem for brewers. A lot of times, most brewers are adding, you know, some kind of rice holes or something like that to their mash to keep it from getting too sticky. So a grain that's in the hole is actually not too big a problem for brewers. But for flour applications, you know, anybody who's going to make bread or crackers or other pastries, the grain will have to be dehulled and then milled into flour. And so the dehulling process, I think... It, it's pretty it's pretty straightforward folks who work in dehulling can absolutely do that and the main problem i think after that because the grain's small separating the hull from the grain itself can be difficult just because usually folks are separating by weight but if the grain's small and the hull is about the same weight as the grain it can be difficult to separate that so has to be cleaned, dehulled, and then the holes have to be cleaned out of the dehulled grain. And that's the process. Gotcha. And I imagine that sort of requires a certain amount of partners who are invested, people who are interested in Kernza and sort of believe in the, the long-term goal 
and then are willing to take on the the grain as something that's new. And is there like an established structure of facilities out there for the processing of Kernza because it is smaller and sort of something new to the market? Yeah, there are not too many just kind of dedicated Kernza processors. We we have a couple of folks who really have centered Kernza as a part of their business model and have invested in processing. But a lot of times what's happening is that that folks who process other grains, you know, are willing to take Kernza in and do some toll processing on behalf of the, the growers. So that's that's a lot of what's happening right now in the marketplace. And that's always difficult because of course, you know, having someone shut down their oat line or something like that, have to readjust all of their equipment, have to clean everything out, have to run the Kernza, then they have to shut it down again, readjust it back for whatever um, they usually use. And and that tends to be, you know, kind of cumbersome and, and difficult. So yeah, I think getting that middle of the supply chain is more established is a really important goal for, for Kernza both for Kernza producers, for Kernza folks like like the Land Institute and our partners, like at the University of Minnesota, that's definitely something that we're we're all trying to work toward. So, where in the U.S. right now is Kernza being grown? Kernza is being grown kind of in many different locations in the U.S., but I would say there are sort of three sort of hubs that are really evolving and and. One is in Montana. We have a lot of acres in Montana where where producers like Kernza because it provides them with a couple of different options. Um, most most of those producers have cattle, and being able to use the grain or use the crop as a forage for their cattle, and either you know do dual use where they get grain and forage, or some of the growers that I work with, you know, if if it's a drought year and the rest of their farm isn't looking good, the Kearns is usually still pretty green and they can go ahead and harvest that for hay and have that hay available for their cattle over the winter. That's been a really, uh, an area where we've seen a lot of producers adopting Kernza. And then the upper Midwest, primarily Minnesota and Wisconsin. And we have a lot of partners in Minnesota who are plant breeders, supply chain, supply chain coordinators, uh, market development folks. There's there's just a, a plethora of activity going on in Minnesota. And the Minnesota Department of Ag and the state of Minnesota have been really supportive of perennial grains and Kernza in particular. And so there are also some incentive programs and things that I think really bring Kernza growers some incentives in, in Minnesota. And then the final area that we really are are seeing growth is kind of the Kansas, Nebraska, Central Plains. It's a really fantastic wheat growing area. So, you know, producers are pretty used to working with small grains and we had had really good um, luck with producers being able to have good, good production on those fields too. So those are sort of the three areas. And then we have producers who are, who are you know, outside of those. We have producers in Wyoming and Colorado and New York and kind of all over. Kernza does have to grow somewhere that that gets cold. So we don't have a lot of producers in like the South just because it needs to have a period of dormancy and cold weather to to allow it to get to flowering. 
you uh, perfectly segued into my next question. I was I was going to ask, you know, where in the country might it perform best based on climate and that sort of thing. A deeper dive into that question, specifically like site location, does intermediate wheatgrass or Kernza prefer like a dry soil or a loam? I, I understand the, re the research is still ongoing, but besides, you know, a cooler climate, what are some of the other requirements for the success of the plant? Yeah, it definitely does not do well in really wet soils. It does not like to have its its roots wet for very long. So anywhere that's sort of low lying or or tends to flood is probably not a great area for Kernza. Intermediate wheatgrass plant will grow kind of in a lot of different types of soil. Certainly, you know, the the more organic matter and healthy the soil, the probably the better yields you're going to get. But yeah, it will grow pretty much anywhere that has about five or six weeks of temperatures below, you know, 50 degrees so that it has time to, to go dormant in the winter. And then it will come back in, in the spring and, and produce grain in the summer. This is kind of a, a random off question, but has anybody ever planted it for soil stabilization? Like, let's say you had like a like a slope above your farm that was eroding could intermediate wheatgrass handle something like that? Or do you think that it's really more suited for like the deep soil types of the Midwest and places that grains are more typically grown? You know, it will, intermediate wheatgrass has been used by like the highway departments <laughs> um, all over, you know, like the Intermountain West and those places. So it will definitely grow. You, you know, if, if you if you put it on a, a shallow soil and you put it somewhere that isn't the best production, you're not going to get great yields. I mean, that's true of probably any plant. Like the the more you kind of nurture it, the better your yields are going to be. But certainly it will grow there and it is and it could be a really important crop, I think, for erosion control. And I know we've had some producers who put it in buffer zones and things like that. So the better your soil, the better your yields, but but certainly it will, the plant itself is pretty hardy and I think will grow in a lot of those kinds of soils. So similarly, like let's say I have a farm that's three acres and I want to integrate Kernza and you know maybe that's not a large enough space for me to be producing Kernza you know, to the point that I can output massive amounts of this grain enough to like create a cereal or something. But what is the the size of, you know, what is like the general acreage that folks who partner with you are using to produce the crop right now? Yeah, I think the largest kind of contiguous acreage is is probably about 200 acres. And and I, the, the average size of the fields of producers we work with is probably about 20 acres. So there is there is quite a range, but most folks have about 20 acres. You know, we early on, we had a lot of folks who had, you know, three to five acres. But what we found was that a lot of times folks were putting it on their worst three acres as sort of a test. And then and they would say like, oh, well, this crop doesn't doesn't do well. And it's like, well, if you put, you know, if you put your best wheat there, would it do well? <laughs> Maybe not. And so we really encourage people to put it somewhere that they that they're going to pay attention to it and that they're they're going to be you know kind of invested in making sure that it does well the other thing is that you know from a smaller field you may not have enough grain that comes off to make it 
sort of economically viable to actually get it, you know, packaged up and shipped to a processor who will work with it and then shipped back to, to a buyer and all of the kind of, you know, less than truckload shipping really cuts into the profitability of the crop. So, so we encourage folks, we do have some growers who have smaller acreages. In that case, we really encourage them to work with other people in their area to be able to kind of ship those lots together. So hopefully they aren't having to pay kind of that less than truckload freight, which really does cut into the the viability. I've seen some photos online of just swaths of, of intermediate wheat, wheatgrass fields. And something that, um, I mean, this some context, I'm in a landscape architecture degree program where everybody seems to, you know, only look at plants as ornamentals. They don't, it's kind of frustrating, but, you know, it could be a, a fantastic productive plant, but they want to know how pretty it is as like the forefront thing before its productive qualities very frequently. It seems to me like Kernza also, ha- or intermediate wheatgrass has potential as something that's really beautiful. Looking out onto a field of it wouldn't be so bad is what is kind of what I'm getting at here. Is that something that's been thought about at all? I mean, uh, I know that that's not the purpose of the Land Institute, but I think it looks really, really gorgeous from the photos that I've seen. You're speaking my language. I love grasses. So, and I live, I live in a short grass <laughs> prairie. So I absolutely love, love the way that it looks. And, and I agree with you. Like, I think that it is really beautiful and has a lot of potential to to be something that's just visually appealing but yeah we haven't we haven't looked at you know other kinds of kind of horticultural or or other uses for the grass but it's definitely it's definitely something that our producers really like is that it does tend to attract a lot of wildlife so you know I've had growers who are like oh man I've had more deer in that field and and are really you know, happy to see the deer there during the winter and things like that. So, so there's also that aspect that it is kind of a draw for ground nesting birds, especially, and for ungulates who really like it. Like a field of dreams. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So I'm really interested in alley cropping systems that Kernza could potentially be introduced to. Yeah. I saw your talk at the agroforestry symposium held by the center for agroforestry and the annual publication that they release has a lot to do with different tree crops being used with different types of wheat or grains or different, you know, things that are grown in between the alleys of trees. Do you know of anybody who's using intermediate wheatgrass for these sorts of systems? Have people reported back that it's that it's been successful or hasn't been successful? There's a lot of interest in using kernza varieties in between, you know, hazelnuts or chestnuts or other tree crops. I think if if you were able to do it on a large like um on a large enough alley, you it could work. Um, you know, of course, like most grasses, it really likes full sun, like most grain grasses anyway, it likes full sun. And it's possible that, you know, the yields near the trees would be pretty low but we don't really know. We've had a couple of folks who I think have put it in in hazelnuts as particularly like in the last, but really only in the last year. So we don't have, you know, good data on how it works. Um, I've also had people who are really interested in, in putting it in to vineyards. You know, I, I always say it is going to compete for water. Like it, you know, it's, it does like water. And so it's not something that 
you're going to want to put in a really dry area and then and think it's just going to thrive so without additional water so i don't know it's it's something that for sure is of interest but no i don't we we just haven't had enough people do it and we haven't had any kind of research or scientific studies that have used kernza in an, in like an alley cropping system we have done you know intercropping with with alfalfa and some other clovers but that's that's sort of about as far as as we've done at the land institute we're really interested in how we might pair kernza of varieties of intermediate wheatgrass with legumes so that the legume would be providing the nitrogen that the crop needs. Well, so for anybody listening, I guess that's a gap in the research for somebody's potential PhD thesis. Yeah. So similarly, you talked about how it had been used as a forage for cattle. Another thing that I'm interested in is silvopasture, you know, the combination of animals uh, foraging in these sort of systems. Something that I've seen is chestnuts used with sheep. If you use something like sheep or, or other ruminant animals with intermediate wheatgrass, is it, you know, you can't, in, the, in that circumstance, there's no harvesting of the Kernza kernels for yields? Is that the case? Like you're sacrificing one for the other? Or is there a way to sort of integrate the system or design the system so that you can have animals move through after the kernels have been harvested? How does that work? Oh, yeah, definitely. We've We've had a lot of folks who've worked on grazing primarily cattle. I, I know a couple of people who do have sheep, but it really has only been in the last year that that I've been working with folks who have sheep on, on Kernza. But yeah, we have cattle. We have a lot of folks who will, you know, maybe take the cutting of Kernza in the summer and then let the grain, let the, let the grass kind of recover and then go back and graze it, you know, in the late fall and winter and pull the pull their animals off sometime in the early winter. So we have a lot of folks who do that kind of dual use. The biomass after harvest has to be removed for the plant to regrow for, for best yields anyway. And so and so there is also that straw that comes off the field that is it's like a higher quality than a wheat straw. So a lot of folks have been using that as like a, a low quality additive to their winter rations um, for ruminant animals as well. It seems like it's quite diverse in its uses. Yeah, I think the most exciting thing for producers about Kernza is that it gives them options. You know, they have the option to braise it. They have the option to hay it. They have the option to harvest it for grain. We don't require the, any particular combination of those things. So uh, we have a lot of growers who are doing grain only, but we have a lot of producers who are grazing or doing graze and grain. And so that's definitely been, I think, the most exciting thing. And the growers who are happiest with Kernza are taking advantage of that dual use. It's really exciting. I mean, any multifunctionality in sort of in the in an already perennial system is is just really fantastic compared to um, you know the the standard commercial agriculture with chemical inputs and all the rest. So in your talk that I saw at the symposium, you talked about the Valley of Death and the sort of the market side of things of getting Kernza from something that is government funded and working with small operators like to the masses. Could we talk about uh, that process a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So I think a good 
analogy for getting these perennial grains from the research station and really just pure research into the the mainstream is the alternative energy industry. So if you look at like solar panels in the late 70s, early 80s, where it's like, you know, there's the technology there, but it's it's not at its most efficient. And there's a lot of research that still needs to be done. There are a lot of people really sort of fighting to get additional funding for this technology that they know is going to be important. And I would say that's kind of where we are. We're really trying to increase the funding levels for perennial grain research. So we really need, you know, everything from the agronomics and the plant breeding and all of that to happen. And at the same time, we need investment in the whole package, which is how do we then process these grains? Where do they get processed? You know, I have producers who call and they're like, well, can I take this to my elevator? And of course, the answer to that is no, (laughs) you know, no elevator is going to take this, this really specialized grain. But how do we get to that point? How do we get to that point where, you know, we can find the support systems, you know, both public and private so both government funded and philanthropic and companies wanting to invest in this grain that really is game changing in terms of its ability to improve soil health and you know water quality and all of these things i think that the main thing is that we're really interested in how we can increase the funding both for the research but also get private companies and food and beverage businesses to see that this is really game changing and that they also have a role to play in terms of being proactive in in their supply chains to make sure that the the products that they're using are really truly regenerative to that point i saw that i think it was whole foods said it you know named kernza as one of their like top 10 like upcoming food trends or something like that which i was like yes big companies <laughs> are signing on so when we talk about the products have you tried the products? Personally, I've never got I've never had the opportunity to try Kernza. My co-host Ben, who unfortunately couldn't be here today, has had the Kernza cereal and he said it tasted really good and he was like, "Yeah, it tasted like a normal cereal. Like it was great." So, what are some of the products and do you have a favorite by any chance? Oh yeah, I definitely have a favorite. <laughs> my my favorite is Perennial Pantry's crackers. They have really amazing crackers that that have Kernza. Um, is one of the ingredients and they're really delicious. But yeah, so I've tried a lot of the products, not all of them. There are new products coming online all the time. So I actually just ordered some Kernza pancake mix for the first time from Sturdy Wheat in Minnesota. So I'm excited to try that. Yeah, there are several different products. They're beers and I've you know, I've had several of the different beers. They're they're whiskey now on the market from Smoky Valley Distillery in Kansas. Kernza, it has a distinct flavor, but it is really a really positive flavor, which is really nice. Not all regenerative things taste great. <laughs> and I think Kernza, the, the real driver for Kernza is going to be the flavor. The fact that, you know, it has all these benefits, but actually it tastes really good as well. And so I would definitely encourage you to, to try some of the products because they are really good. And for... Those of us who have gluten intolerances, it still has gluten, but does it have less gluten than standard wheat? What's the deal with that? 
Yeah, no, it's a high, it has a lot of gluten. It's, it's a high gluten or, or high protein. And a lot of that protein is gluten. The gluten performs differently and it is a different gluten than is in meat. So some people with gluten intolerance have reported that they can eat Kernza and it's fine for them, but I'm not making that recommendation. <laughs> I want to be clear about that. If you have, you know, celiac or um, gluten intolerance, this product does have gluten and should probably be avoided. Gotcha. Could we talk about some of the other perennialization projects that the Land Institute is working on? I know that there's a, some sorghum and perennial rice and a few other things. Before I found out about Kernza, I found out about the survivor sorghum that was being offered through the Experimental Farm Network. I'm not sure if that's the same sorghum that the Land Institute is working with. Our listeners, I think, would be, you know, everybody who listens to this podcast is interested in a variety of perennial alternatives to annuals. So yeah, what are these other perennialization projects? Yeah, so we have a perennial wheat program, which is what I was kind of talking about before, where we take annual wheat and cross it with intermediate wheatgrass to try and get all the perennial things we like and all the annual things we like into um, a single crop. We have a perennial sorghum program, which is similar. It's a perennial relative crossed with the annual. Then we have a perennial oil seeds program where we're looking at sylphium integrifolium, which is also called, commonly called rosin weed, as a potential oil seed crop. And then we have a legume breeding program that is looking at several different crops. So they, they work on alfalfa as a mixture for intercropping with of some of the other crops like Kernza, they look at sandpoin. Um, sandpoin is a is another crop that has been grown as a forage and has a relatively large seed size and is another delicious pulse potential. That so we're we're looking at moving that into the pulse marketplace. Oh, and then Kernza, of course. And then the perennial rice breeding program is actually at Yunnan University in China. We have collaborated with them for many years. And yeah, that's been a really successful program. There are several varieties of perennial rice now on the market, and it's being grown in like more than 14,000 acres all over Southeast Asia. So that's another exciting program for sure. Yeah, I've been seeing that on the news. I don't, I don't or well, I, I think it was like a New York Times or NPR article or something I saw. But that's, I mean, that's really exciting. Rice feeds such a large population of the world. So I feel like that would, would just have such an incredible impact in terms of, you know, climate goals, along with Kernza and all these other grains. Are there other products that are being made by the other projects or is are they not as far along as Kernza is? My hope is that in the next year, we'll see some sandpoint-based products on the marketplace. It's pretty close where we are currently pursuing the grass, which is generally regarded as safe status. So, so you have to get this status to make sure that it's safe for humans to consume. So we're pretty close to getting that. And so I'm hoping that we'll see the first products with that crop on the market. Let's see. So sandpoint. And then with perennial sorghum, the first beer and distillates have been produced at, through a research program at Middle Tennessee State University. So we're, we're seeing some research, some sort of food science research happening there, fermentation science. So I think we will see additional products, certainly from at least 
from at least one crop in the next year and probably an, another one or two crops in the next five years. That's very exciting. Do you have any advice for folks who are looking to integrate these perennial grains into their farms or their systems? If they want to grow Kernza on their own, what do they do? Do they reach out to the Land Institute? Is it kind of a, it, are, is there even the opportunity for that? Or does the Land Institute work with only a select group of people for folks who want to, you know, who listen to this episode and get excited about these products and these plants? What should they do? They should go to Kernza.org. The process for applying to become a grower is outlined on Kernza.org. There's a list of of products that are currently on the market. There's also a contact. If if you're not finding the information you want, you can always reach out to us. And landinstitute.org is where folks can find out about all of the things that we've been talking about today. Okay, so I think we we really covered the, you know, the gamut in terms of Kernza and perennial grain production. Thank you, Tessa, so much for spending this time with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I'm always excited to to talk about the work that, that we do with the land. I think it's really important. So thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, listeners, thanks for sticking around and we'll see you next time. <laughs>